Hello, great men and women. It's Friday, and that means it's time for DGMH, Drinks with Great Men in History. Today, we cover one of the biggest names in history. Hell, the man even has a holiday. But was the man who in 1492 famously sailed the ocean blue truly a champion of his age? A great man who conquered the unknown? Or did he just get lucky? Was he just the greedy, genocidal bastard that so many today like to make him out to be? In the end, it will be up for you to decide Columbus's fate, but will you be kinder to him than history? However you feel, let's sit down and have a drink with another great man in history. It's some history for you, a reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great men that made history come to be. Now, today's episode is yet again brought to you by the ungodly amount of time I have on my hands, which seems to be dwindling more and more as I dive deeper and deeper into this podcasting journey. Today, we are going to introduce a few new pieces to the show, but we should still settle in around half an hour, because even I start to get bored after that. Today we are exploring the life and legacy of a truly impactful character in all our shared past, Christopher Columbus. Born in Genoa around 1450 at the height of the Italian Renaissance, it seems Columbus was born to the sea, joining a naval crew at only 10 years of age. But was he destined for greatness? On a side note, if you enjoyed today's show, be sure to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, and don't forget to go back and listen to any episodes you missed. DGMH can be found just about anywhere you listen to your podcast, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. And be sure to follow me on Instagram at DGMH underscore History Podcast, where you can see recording photos, pictures of our great men in action, and all kinds of historical shit, oh, and a ton of drinking. Which, speaking of, today I am enjoying a delightful imported Italian beer called Menabrea, which is really hard to find, and I can only seem to get it at this one local pizza place. A favorite on all my visits to Italy, of which there have been a few, Menabrea Blonde is a refreshing ale that is the perfect beer for the Florida summer or Pennsylvania fall. Now, Italian beers are a personal favorite of mine, but some of you might not enjoy them as much. But for me, they're always very enjoyable and somewhat light. Menabrea is definitely near the top of my Italian beer list, surpassing, in my humble opinion, Peroni and Bira Moretti. If you can, grab yourself a beer and let's have a drink with the man, the murderer, the maniac of many names, Cristoforo Colombo, Cristobal Colombo. Christopher Columbus. Now, on to his story. Christopher Columbus was born sometime in the early 1450s, likely but not sure 1451, in the Italian port city of Genoa. He would spend some time in Portugal where he met his first wife, had his first child, and worked with various merchant houses in the Portuguese Atlantic archipelagos, and he would eventually teach himself to read and write. Over the course of 30 plus years, Columbus refined his sailing skills and grew very observant of the world around him. This led him to develop a crazy scheme to find a westward route to the riches of Asia. To say that Columbus's plan was based on sound evidence would make for a very funny joke. He basically cherry-picked all of his resources, only choosing those that supported his theory. And the evidence he used was a little dated, relying heavily on Marco Polo's 13th century text and some old Ptolemaic charts that indicated the world was much smaller than his contemporaries were claiming. Columbus's plan was actually quite simple, though. Sail west into the literal void that was the uncharted Atlantic Ocean, and you will eventually hit Asia. 
Now, I, you know, think about it. It's not exactly wrong, but it's not exactly right either. See, Columbus's estimation of the Earth's circumference was off by about one-sixth or 4,000 miles. Look at my math skills improving by the day. And he did argue that there was definitely, in no way, no large landmass between Europe and Asia. But here I sit. So back to our great, maybe a little crazy, man with a plan. Being a resident of the Kingdom of Portugal, Columbus first turned to the Portuguese King Zhao II for patronage. But the monarch turned down Columbus's proposal for a series of reasons. First, the Portuguese were on the verge of rounding the tip of Africa, which they believed would give them access to the riches of the East. Of course, here I mean spices like cinnamon and nutmeg, and they would get there by means of an easterly sea route. Second, and as I already mentioned, no learned man of the day would have backed Columbus's plan because his estimations were noticeably inaccurate. Finally, Portugal was already making a ton of money trading in West Africa and saw little to gain in Columbus's proposal. But what made Columbus's proposal so enticing to the kings and queens of Europe in the first place? For that answer, we should jump back to the year 1453, when the Ottomans under Mehmet II successfully conquered the Byzantine Empire in its entirety. Breaking the Theodosian walls of Constantinople was truly an amazing feat, but the Byzantine Empire was basically on its deathbed at this point anyway, existing only as a privileged vassal of the Ottoman Turks. This story is one we will cover more on a different day, but it does impact our tale a little. So for us, the Ottoman dominance of the land routes to Asia presented Catholic monarchs with several new problems. First, the uber-Catholic areas of Europe, like Spain, had no desire to trade with and therefore empower Islamic-dominated territories. Merchants, primarily from Italy, dominated the sea trade routes, and others found overland routes had become less safe under Ottoman rule. And the spice and sugar trade out of the East had just really become quite pricey. So what's a girl like Spain and Portugal to do? Well, simple. Find another way to the East. Now, it's a common misconception that the Western Europeans were denied access to the land route. They just didn't benefit from using it in ways they had in previous centuries. See, the Ottomans, unlike every Western European country, were smart. They would never shut down trade, and they tended to look past silly things like religion when it benefited them. Either way, the land route through the Ottoman Empire was not looking like the best pathway for Western Europeans. Other factors like Renaissance humanism, a desire to explore, and new technologies were all crucial in Europeans' willingness to conduct such voyages of discovery and exploration in the 1400s. So who was crazy enough to fund Columbus's plan? Well, I guess for simplicity's sake, we will say Spain. A Spain ruled by Queen Isabella of Castile and King Ferdinand of Aragon, also known as the Catholic Monarchs, who jointly ruled over the various kingdoms of Spain. Actually, they first dismissed Columbus's crazy plan. Ferdinand actually hated the guy, but it really was just because they were too busy doing other things. But in late 1491, Spain successfully completed a decade-long war called the Reconquista. This war actually lasted centuries, but eh, whatever. This war was against the Islamic Iberian Kingdom of Granada, and now that they had defeated their enemy, they had cash to burn. Isabella almost immediately recalled Columbus, and the monarchs agreed to provide him with the means to sail across the Atlantic. A lot of minute factors went into preparing the voyage, but we're not overly concerned with that. Most of the money was provided by Genoese bankers, and Columbus eventually set sail after a very brief delay on August 3rd, 1492. He left Spain for the Canary Islands, and from there, on September 6th, Columbus sailed west into the unknown. But the true unknown surely rested deep within Columbus himself and the Catholic monarchs, as both were uncertain of the voyage's success or the crew's survival. Now, Ferdinand and Isabella had everything to gain here, but what would Columbus get out of this arrangement? The answer can be found in the Capitulations of Santa Fe. 
1492, after the completion of the Granada War, the Catholic monarchs agreed to some very generous terms, which says something about Columbus's negotiating skills. He was able to get the monarchs to agree to name him Governor and Viceroy, essentially ruler in their name of all land he discovered. They agreed to name him High Lord Admiral of the Seas, meaning like all the ocean territory Spain would come to dominate, and he was granted 10% of all the profits. Now that might not seem like a lot to you, but the crown actually was only going to take 20%, so that's a pretty sweet deal. Not only that, Columbus was basically elevated from homeless, penniless vagabond to a freaking king by another name. So, after two months of sailing in the Atlantic Ocean, the words firme firme rang across the Santa Maria. I'm sure this man, who was the first European to see the Americas in nearly 500 years, was overwhelmed with excitement. Why? Well, he now knew that he and his fellow crew members weren't going to starve to death, and Columbus had promised the man who first spotted land a very large reward. But, in true Columbus's a dick fashion, he claimed he saw the land the night before and took the reward for himself. What an ass. But now we need to take a moment to address one of the greatest accomplishments of Columbus's career, crossing the Atlantic Ocean. History sometimes overlooks this moment or oversimplifies it, but it is no different and no more difficult than rounding the Cape of Good Hope or circumnavigating the globe, especially in the 1400s. Columbus's abilities as a sailor should never be brought into question, but to be fair, I don't know shit about sailing. But my sources make it pretty clear that not every man nor every sailor could have led this expedition into the unknown or been brave enough to and survived the Atlantic crossing. Columbus needed the skills necessary to lead and guide a crew. Plus, he had to know how to use all those new nautical technologies that Europeans were developing. Which, yes, most sailors could do, but think on this. Columbus understood the tech of the day. Sailors understood the tech of the day. But it's probably fair to assume that if Columbus tried to teach his grandmother how to use an astrolabe, it would have gone just about as well as me teaching my grandma how to use Snapchat. What I'm trying to say is not everyone could sail, plus sailors basically had to guess how far they had traveled in the absence of precise ways to measure time and speed, using a process called dead reckoning. It took an amazing sailor to accomplish this daring feat, and had Columbus simply explored and not tried to govern, he would be remembered as one of the most loved and courageous figures of his day. But he tried to lead, and he totally fucked that up. Columbus made landfall in the Bahamas at a spot he christened San Salvador on October 12, 1492. After a somewhat peaceful first encounter with the Arawak and later Taino natives in the Bahamas, Cuba, and Hispaniola, which is today Haiti and the Dominican Republic, he went about acting like a true European colonizer, or in short, a dick. He began taking advantage of the native population actually taking some as slaves. Columbus noted right away in his journal that the Taino were peaceful and friendly, and that they would be easily conquered by a few hundred Spaniards in the absence of any real military technology. He would go on to note that the Taino population would make perfect subjects, and here we can assume he means slaves. Columbus decided to leave a small outpost on Hispaniola that was built out of the remnants of his wrecked flagship, the Santa Maria, which he called La Navidad. This makeshift settlement would be manned by a group of men that would make perfect villains to any story. Desperate debtors, thieves, killers, and rapists. What the hell could go wrong? Columbus's return to Spain would be an interesting one, as his vessel would get forced off course by a storm, pushing him right into Lisbon Harbor. As sad a reality as it might be, I best point out that Lisbon is the capital city of Portugal. So he landed in the greatest port of Spain's greatest naval rival, and you can imagine that the Portuguese King Jao II had a few things to say about Columbus's newly claimed lands in the name of Spain. 
By this point, the Portuguese had already rounded the tip of Africa, known then as the Cape of Storms, and were set on dominating the East Indian spice trade. But Columbus's discoveries could really mess that up for him. But the Portuguese actually had full right to claim these lands for themselves under the terms of a treaty signed with Spain in 1479. That treaty was called the Treaty of Alcosavas, and it ended the War of the Castilian Succession between Portugal and Spain. Basically, the treaty granted the Atlantic and all of the African trade to Portugal, and in return, Spain gained the Canary Islands, and Isabella got to rule Castile uncontested. But the Catholic monarchs weren't going to accept that, and they had an ace up their sleeves, the Pope. In 1492, the resident pope was the corrupt asshole Alexander VI, whose Spaniards knew as Rodrigo Borja. The pope actually issued a papal bull in 1493, which gave Spain all of the new lands Columbus discovered and royally pissed off the Portuguese. By 1494, Portugal and Spain renegotiated terms and signed the Treaty of Tordesillas that split the world in half. But back to Columbus. Within a year or two of his return to Spain, tales of his journey and discovery had been printed in several languages including Latin, Spanish, and Italian, and had reached the hands of every learned man and woman in Western Europe. Columbus, by 1494, had essentially become the Kardashian of his day. But this begs an interesting question. Could Columbus's fame and even his voyage had been a success without previous innovations and changes of the Renaissance? One would rightly assume, no. It's easy to point to new ship styles, sails, and compasses, but there is one less obvious item in Columbus's story that may have been more influential to his success. That invention, of course, is the Gutenberg printing press. Historian Mary Wisner Hanks goes as far as to ask the question, would Columbus have even left Europe had printing not given him access to all of these new ideas? These ideas that pertain to mathematics, sailing, and beyond was only circulated with the advent of the printing press. Columbus relied on print maps, Italian copies of Marco Polo's travels, and reprints of ancient geographical texts. And we know this to be true because of his personal annotations on the actual documents he left behind. The emerging print culture certainly boosted his celebrity status, so much so that one Italian noble noted in 1495, but one thing I want you to know is that, in my humble opinion, since Genoa was Genoa, there has never been a man so courageous and astute in the act of navigation as Columbus. By 1494, the Catholic monarchs had agreed to fund a much larger voyage, and Columbus returned intending to colonize, and he still believed he was sailing towards an Asia with no Asians. He set out, though, to settle the New World for Spain. Upon his return to Hispaniola, he found things had taken an unanticipated turn. La Navidad had been destroyed, his men all killed, and the relations with the natives had certainly soured. Real quick note on Asia, though. Columbus believed himself to be in the East Indies, and constantly pointed to the idea that these may be newly discovered islands, but that Asia was just one island away. Not surprising, but Columbus didn't react the best when he found his first colony and all his men had ceased to exist. Remember, these men were criminals and all-around bad people, and likely got what they deserved. It is fairly common knowledge that Columbus's early settlements were plagued with all kinds of criminal activity, murder, and rape, and Columbus's lack of good leadership on land was partly to blame for this. However, I won't sit here and act like Columbus was some sort of pimp or serial rapist. That is just going too far. Columbus's second voyage was very different from his first. We might say his first voyage was one of discovery and exploration, as would later ones be, but the second voyage was all about colonization, and this set the stage for some of Columbus's greatest missteps. Columbus returned to Hispaniola with more than a thousand colonists and set out to establish a new settlement that he named La Isabella, which was the first permanent European settlement in the New World. It was from here that Columbus went about ruling, and boy did he do a shitty job. 
He essentially enslaved the Taino population by means of forced labor demands. Native laborers were forced to meet quotas of gold, and when they couldn't, Columbus would commonly punish them by cutting off one of their hands. What an ass. His overworking of the native population would lead many Taino to commit suicide or die due to exhaustion. His efforts produced little gold and even smaller amounts of success. However, it was in the shadows that lay the Taino's greatest enemy, and believe it or not, it wasn't Columbus, but instead, disease. Within the first decade of Columbus's arrival in the Americas, more than a third of the Taino population had been devastated by overwork and disease. To learn more about the process known to history as the Columbian Exchange, which Columbus can't be directly blamed for, you should go back and listen to episode 1.1, The Chaser. On a similarly sweet note, though, it was Columbus that first introduced sugar and plantation labor to the Caribbean. I should say he transplanted it. He really took instituted ideas that were successful from his time on the Portuguese Atlantic sugar islands of Madeira and the Azores. Columbus's brutality and mistreatment of the Taino population and mismanagement of his colonies certainly tarnish his legacy, and would continue to plague his career as governor and viceroy of the Indies. His actions would ignite an indigenous rebellion and eventually be his undoing. But let us turn for a moment to the margins of his story, and I will say it was hard to find a female case study that I don't plan to cover in a future episode, so I figured I would take a quick moment to discuss a key woman of our story. Isabella of Castile. Isabella was the co-monarch of the Kingdom of Spain, ruling alongside her husband, King Ferdinand of Aragon, and was instrumental in the victory over Granada in the Reconquista. It seems that unlike her husband, she had the foresight to see the potential benefits of Columbus's possible success. She was a devout Catholic that did not want to see the indigenous American population subjugated to slavery, but ultimately failed to stop it. By the time of her death in 1504, Spain was a massive and growing empire, and Castile, her personal kingdom, was now a centralized state, setting the stage for absolute rule under her Habsburg successors. Not so much a woman of the margins, but instead a great woman for another day. But it is fair to say that she does sometimes get overlooked in the story of Christopher Columbus. Turning to a true point in the margins, I would like to talk about the indigenous population that Columbus encountered, the Taino. The Taino were the group most directly impacted by Columbus's encounters in the New World, and even more so, they were directly and only negatively impacted by Columbus's, oh, I don't know, we'll call it rule. They were brutalized by the Spaniards and nearly made extinct by disease. The Taino were a tribal entity that dominated parts of the Caribbean, existing as a loose-knit confederation of sorts. They would be conquered by Columbus's more brutal successors, forcibly Christianized, and virtually enslaved on Spanish encomiendas. Their pre-Columbian story is one less known, and their post-Columbian story is rather tragic. Disease would wipe out about 90% of the Taino and Arawak tribes by the end of the 1500s. Today, most Puerto Ricans can trace their lineage to the Taino, but this culture was not only marginalized by European conquest, they were decimated by it. And on that note, let us see how all this came to be as we move back to his story. Nothing will make us question Columbus's greatness more so than his third voyage from which he returned to Spain in chains. It was on Columbus's third voyage that he first made landfall in what is today South America, and did note that there were indicators of a possible new massive continent. But for his legacy's sake, he continued to argue that he was heading towards Asia. After returning to his newly established colonies, Columbus demonstrated all the best leadership qualities one can ask for. Brutality, unwillingness to listen to reason, and a lack of loyalty from his peers. Yeah, he was pretty much just shit. He continued to brutalize the native population in his foolish search for something that wasn't there, gold. 
he failed to govern and develop a lucrative colonial structure possibly centered around sugar, and he faced a full-scale uprising from Spaniards and native Taino, which he was forced to brutally suppress. Don't think him successful in this, however, because the crown had caught wind of Columbus's misdoings and sent a sort of inspector named Francisco de Bobadilla to determine if the rumors were true, and they most certainly were. Supposedly, Bobadilla arrived on Hispaniola just as Columbus was getting ready to execute the Spaniards who had rebelled against him and his brother Bartholomew. Bobadilla pardoned the rebels, and he sent Columbus and his brothers back to Spain in chains. Bobadilla would actually prove to be a reasonable and successful governor of the Indies for however short-lived his reign. It is interesting, though, because Bobadilla would later die in a shipwreck in which all but one ship in the fleet was destroyed. The story goes that this was the ship carrying Columbus's personal dues. Many came to believe that the now old admiral magically summoned that storm in 1502 that killed his former captor. Columbus did not return to Spain this time as a hero and fabled explorer, but instead a criminal. Well, that was true in the eyes of King Ferdinand anyway, but Isabella was on the fence, and the people showed great disdain for seeing their hero in chains. Columbus was quickly released, but stripped of his titles as governor and viceroy of the Indies. The Catholic monarchs did, however, agree to send him on one final mission of exploration, but banned him from attempting to make contact with his Spaniola. The crown's colonial interests by this point seemed to be more powerful than their sense of loyalty to their new empire's founder. But in their defense, Columbus did do a really shitty job. Columbus's fourth and final voyage would be one of pure exploration, and he explored a lot. On his final voyage, he made landfall in several new islands in the Lesser Antilles, the northern coastline of South America, and he explored most of the Central American coastline. But sadly, our great heroic admiral and seafarer spent most of his time shipwrecked in Jamaica. He would return to Hispaniola where he was not welcomed, and sail back to Spain to claim the riches he thought he was due. Columbus would end up dying a fairly rich man, but with a very tarnished reputation. Columbus's legacy would be revitalized nearly 300 years after his death, and it would be boosted even more so in the 1930s during the FDR presidency. But all of this only brought about more speculation and criticism of our great man. So it is time to ask ourselves whether Columbus was truly a great man or a great monster, as history and historians have painted Christopher Columbus as both the hero and villain in our shared past. So now it's time to move to the scale of greatness. Starting with a drink, Menabrea Blonde. In terms of taste, Menabrea is a light blonde ale that goes down smooth. It sits light, but is full of flavor, and amazingly, I have never had a hangover from it. Beyond that, it goes great with a slice of pizza. Five points for taste. In terms of returnability, my neighbor and I drink Menabrea every time we go out to our favorite local pizza place, so shout out to Talio's in Port Charlotte. Now this beer can be quite hard to find, so it can be quite hard to return to, but I return to it every chance I get. Menabrea gets a solid 5 points for returnability, but I will tell you it does hurt in one place. Where, you ask? My wallet. As a genuine import, Menabrea is going to cost you a pretty penny in the States, but it is definitely worth trying if you get the chance. There are cheaper Italian beers, but they just aren't as good. It's affordable in Italy, expensive in the US, and way too expensive at dinner. And yet, I still get it. Two points for price. Leaving the show with 12 out of 18 points, Menabrea gets three crowns, but I would definitely suggest that you try it at least once. It is one of the better popular Italian beers. Onto our great man of the moment. So Christopher Columbus, what can we say? Columbus's greatest accomplishment is also his most famous, discovering the New World or the Americas. But while his voyage did require a great deal of bravery and skill, it was also a lucky break. Had the Americas not been there, Columbus and his men would have all died of starvation. 
Still, we must give credit where credit is due. And it isn't due to the Vikings, Africans, the Portuguese, the Chinese, or any other single European. It is due to Columbus. I get angry when, and I don't want you to think that I'm implying that, Columbus was just some sort of lucky fool. He had a plan, and like all plans, he relied on a little luck to conquer the unknown. And he did conquer the unknown and tame the rough Atlantic Ocean. His four voyages were essential pieces of the Age of Discovery, and some historians note that this is where the history of capitalism really could begin. 1492 was the point from which the early modern world emerged. He paved the way for European conquest and settlement of the Americas and laid the framework for the colonial structure that would prosper and last for centuries. Good or bad, he did it. Furthermore, he was able to gain the support of the Catholic monarchs on more than one occasion, despite the fact that the odds were overwhelmingly against him. I am awarding Columbus four points for his many accomplishments. But, on to leadership. He was a good admiral, but a shit leader. I don't really need to say more, but I will. Columbus was good at managing his crew, but he was god-awful at managing his colonies. He had the opportunity to maintain peaceful relations with the native population, but succumbed to greed. I can't really award him much here for leadership, especially because even in his greatest arena, the sea, he still made a few mistakes along the way. Columbus gets a disappointing two points for leadership. But entertainment might redeem Columbus here. I mean, Columbus is a mess, his legacy is questionable, but I personally find his story fascinating. He did unbelievable things, but he continuously dropped the ball, and when Columbus's balls dropped, people died. Moreover, the debate over his heroism and villainy, as well as his legacy, always makes for some good conversation with my colleagues and friends. But for more on that, you should really tune in for next Tuesday's episode of Shots Heard Round the World, in which a few friends and I sit here and discuss how Columbus squares off against one of our other great men for the crown of greatness. And be sure to tune in this Tuesday, which has kind of become my conversational day, in which I launch my first short segment of A Twist of Psych with Sherry, in which my good friend Dr. Sherry Valensic and myself sit here and talk about what made Columbus crazy, insane, brave, what made him tick. Columbus is going to leave with four points for entertainment. Now, as the show evolves, I find myself needing to find creative ways to address new obstacles, whether it be music, layout, or editing, but in this case, I had a different problem which is becoming more and more apparent as I research future great men. What do I do when my great man of the hour is kind of a piece of shit? So, to solve that problem, I've created the piece of shit curve, which allows me to rate these men for their accomplishments and then deduct piece of shit curve points before awarding them their score. Let's call them POS points. So, that begets the question, was Columbus a piece of shit? And to that I say, eh, kind of. He was particularly brutal towards the Taino and Arawak populations of the Caribbean, working many to the point of suicide, and he indirectly is responsible for introducing Americans to a slew of European diseases that eventually wiped out 90% of the Taino population. But again, for more on that, you should definitely go back and listen to my episode of DGMH The Chaser on the Columbian Exchange, like right after this. Now, I will say I am torn. Columbus was a bit of an idiot and not really a nice guy, but he wasn't inherently evil, just inherently European. So for our first time using the piece of shit curve, I'm only deducting one POS point from our great man, Christopher Columbus. That leaves Columbus with a disappointing 10 out of 18 points, and he narrowly leaves with three crowns. A truly impactful story, but was Columbus truly the reason for it? As a quick reminder, Drinks with Great Men in History can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Buzzsprout, 
Buzzsprout.com, all over my Facebook and Instagram pages, and just about anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. Make sure that you join my Facebook group at Drinks with Great Men in History, and follow me on Instagram at DGMH underscore History Podcast to see the recording and drinking process unfold. Feel free to leave me any questions you have in the comments, and let me know of a great man that you might want me to cover in the future. DGMH will return with our next great man in two weeks. I won't stall in telling you who this one is. It's the champion of World War II, the murderer of millions, the crown prince of purges, Joseph Stalin. And don't forget to tune in next Friday for the chaser to our Columbus episode, in which we will cover a piece of history that I'm sure you missed buried deep within this episode, the Alhambra Decree. If you enjoy the show or want to support or be part of future episodes, visit my Patreon page. There, you can become my Ferdinand and Isabella by offering your support and patronage to my show. Patreons will receive insider perks and a possible chance to partake in the show directly. Well, whether you like him or not, today we raise a glass to our hero, our villain, Christopher Columbus. You didn't really discover America, you just ran into it. A simple reality that you chose to deny till your death. You couldn't lead, you couldn't govern, but your adventures served as a sort of Big Bang moment in which two worlds collided. From that collision, a literal and metaphorical new world came into existence. Most Americans, North and South alike, find themselves torn on whether we should idolize you or admonish you. Hell, two countries even claim to house your remains. Italians seem to adore you, indigenous descendants whose people you never encountered inherently hate you. You may be somewhat of a racist, genocidal piece of shit, but you're our piece of shit. But what the hell? I'm an American sitting here enjoying an Italian beer, and Chris, in some weird way, you're kind of responsible for that. So raise a glass to our friend, Chris, a shit leader with questionable geographical skills, but I'm proud to be an American, and Columbus helped that come to be. Cheers. Cheers.